Welcome to the Crime Wire podcast on the Inside Lunch Network with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides, suspicious deaths, and other topics of interest to our audience. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co-host is Delilah Jones of Imagine Publicity. Hi, Delilah. Hey, Denny. Here we go again. I'm, it's it's good to be back. It's been a while since um, we were able to do a Crime Wire podcast, so this, you know, this is like old home week, right? <laughs> Certainly is. And we're on the net, uh, the Inside Lens Network, which produces a, a variety of different shows. Over the years, we've done shows about. Denny and his mob friends. We've done shows about writing and the writing process. Uh, we've got a show called Shattered Lives, hosted by Donna Gore, that um, it it showcases the victim's perspective of, of criminal activity, I guess. And then I also do an author interview podcast, Imagine Publicity on Air. So there's a wide variety of things to listen to on this network, and we hope um, everyone finds something. Yes, uh, when I think of all the different podcasts we've done, it's uh... It makes me feel rather old, <laughs> older than I should. <laughs> We've been around a long been a time, of... Denny. <laughs> well, today we're not going to be talking about uh, unsolved murders. However, we're going to be talking about a, a subject or subjects that are um, the source of uh, a lot of controversy and uh, a lot of pain to certain people who are involved with these uh with these entities, and they're going to, we're specifically talking about family court and child protective service systems, and we're going to be discussing them with New Jersey attorney Paul Clark. Paul graduated with honors from the University of Chicago in 2005. Prior to that, he attended the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and Christendom College in Front Royal, Virginia, where he earned a B.A. in political science. He is currently an adjunct professor at Hudson County Community College and has been widely published on criminal law. Welcome to Crime Wire, Paul. Yes, thank you, Denny. Thank you for having me. And, and hello, Delilah. You too. Um, what uh, I got to admit, Paul, and I, I've, we've done shows in the past, uh, uh, some shows, regarding these specific individuals who were caught up in the uh, in the family court and child protective uh, realm, uh, I don't have thankfully personal experience with that, so I I don't claim to be an expert on it. But um, what I'd like for you to do, if you would, is tell our listeners what is going on with our family courts and child protective services, and and how you are involved in that. Well, there's incredible corruption in the family courts. And this is specifically in New Jersey, but of course not limited to New Jersey. There was a notorious scandal in Pennsylvania about uh, a decade ago. You may remember it's sometimes referred to as the kids for cash scandal, but pretty much the same thing goes on in New Jersey and, you know, in a lot of other States. And the reason that corruption can flourish is that they keep these proceedings secret. They try and do everything secret. In fact, they frequently put gag orders on participants. 
so that they can't talk about what happens. Parents are always terrified they're going to lose their children. As I'm sure you know, the state can pretty much take away children at the drop of a hat, even though the U.S. Supreme Court has said that custody of children is a fundamental right. But unfortunately, the federal courts rarely want to get involved, despite this being a federally guaranteed right. The federal government in general often doesn't want to get involved, but sometimes they do. And in fact, the, the, the main case I want to talk about, the federal government did get involved. But the point is, because the, the, the excuse is because it involves children, it has to be kept secret. But keeping it secret means that they can get away with anything. They can get away with taking bribes, which looks like it happened, in, in, again, in the main case I want to talk about. Uh, certainly happening in the kids for cash situation. So just to give you some background, because some of you, your listeners, uh, you may not remember this kids for cash scandal. But this is, and this is well established. I mean, again, if you Google kids for cash Pennsylvania, you can find out about it. And there was two judges that were prosecuted and, and went to jail. They were prosecuted by the federal government. And this was a totally corrupt system. They had their brother and one of the judges' brother-in-laws was a child psychologist, which is another part of the scandal. These people, these psychologists make hundreds of thousands of dollars, and there's, again, very little oversight. But in the Kids for Cash scandal, the, these two judges bought through their wives essentially a prison, a detaining facility. And then they sentenced minors to jail. They don't call it jail and minors, but, you know, just to be technical. Essentially, these two judges sentenced the minors to jail, to incarceration, with the help of this corrupt child psychologist. And they sent them to the jail owned by the wives of these two judges. And these judges made millions of dollars for years locking up innocent people and getting the state to pay for the incarceration in, in, this, in this place that they, they owned. And, of course, nobody wanted to believe that judges are corrupt. Nobody wants to believe judges are corrupt, but lots of judges are corrupt. But the point is that this secret system, I mean, you know, as we're recording, we've been, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had the situation with the, you know, police being videotaped, abusing and, you know, murdering people. And the reason this comes out is because it's public, because somebody sees it, because there's video evidence and you put it up on the Internet. But in the family courts, everything is secret. So judges can literally get away with taking bribes, with doing all kinds of stuff. So let me, and, and, I, and I have a number of other cases, too, that I can talk about. But let me talk to you about the main case that, uh, where there seems to be some really serious corruption. So I have a client. Uh, his name is Surrender Mahan. And he, he married quite a bit a younger woman and well it wasn't real a, a real marriage but in any case he 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 thought he married this woman uh about 20 years younger than he was from ukraine and brought her over from ukraine and then she proceeded to basically steal all his money uh he had about a half a million dollars in life savings when he married her and he took these life savings invested them in properties and in, in residential properties and she said, well, listen, I'll, I'll manage these properties for you. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of the mortgages and everything. So she was collecting rent, allegedly, and supposedly paying the mortgage. And she was actually funneling the, the money to her mother. So she ended up funneling about at, at least $300,000 to her mother 
over 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 several years. Yeah, they were supposed to be going to pay mortgages and things. And in fact, she made it look like she was paying mortgage. So she would collect the, and again, this gets back into the judicial corruption. So I'm going to get back to that, but I want you to you, you realize the background of all this. Um, so Surrender Malhan's putative wife, Alina Myronova, she takes a few hundred thousand dollars and she gives it to her mother. And it wasn't even very smart. They, they, she would just write checks to her mother. But what she did was, when the checks came back from the bank, it has her mother, Victoria Myronova, on the check, right? She wipes out the name Victoria Myronova, and she writes in a bank in this payee part. So it looks like the money, and then she shows the, she shows the checks to her husband, right? And says, well, see, look, I'm paying off the mortgage. See, this money went to the mortgage. It was really going to her mother. So this went on, as I said, for, for several years. Finally, this woman files for divorce. Mr. Mallon files, cross-files for annulment because the whole thing was a fraud. All she was ever doing was stealing money from him. And he starts trying to look at, audit the books and finds out that she had been you know, swindling him out of this money, hundreds of thousands of dollars for several years. So takes this to the court. And in fact, these falsified checks were, were provided in discovery for the divorce case. So he asked her to provide copies of documentation of where all the money went, because this is his life savings, which are basically gone now. So she provides in discovery these false checks and these false affidavits saying, oh, all the money went to pay mortgages. So Malhan subpoenas the bank records directly from the bank, and lo and behold, he sees these checks with, with the mother's name on it, again, for, for about $300,000. So goes to the court says to the, to the court, this is, one, this is the first judge in the case. There's been several judges. The judge in the case uh, says, um, yeah, this is a problem. Looks like she's committed a crime. We'll have to have some, some discovery on this, what's going on. Th- this was like seven years ago. So the case just drags on. They don't want this case to ever end because the criminal proceeding, the judge says, well, I'm not going to refer this to criminal charges until the, the, the case is over. Uh, but as soon as the case is over, I'm going to refer this because this is a criminal offense. So she's stolen this money. She falsified evidence and so forth. Okay, so this was years ago. So fast forward a couple of judges. Um, Mr. Malhan is ordered to go to mediation, and and this and this crazy woman uh, go to mediation. So we go to two mediators. Perfectly neutral mediators. They look at this evidence. They say, "My gosh, this woman owes him hundreds of thousands of dollars. She just stole the money. She's got to pay it back." So in this case, so they 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 basically said she has to pay back all this money that she 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 took illegally, right? So she's going to owe him hundreds of thousands of dollars when the case is over. Okay, couple then after this, after the mediator says obviously she owes him hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is where we start to get into the the obvious corruption. She somehow assigns her claim in the suit, which is worthless. So an assignment is when you have, like, if someone owes you money. Let's say that that, uh, somebody violated a contract, right? And they violated a contract, and you think that it's worth $100,000 for the damages. You can sell that or assign that claim to somebody else, and they they can prosecute the suit for you. So that's what an assignment is. So even though... She clearly owes Malhan hundreds of thousands of dollars. She somehow goes to a bank in New York, and she assigns her claim to this bank for two hundred thousand dollars. 
So this is the first suspicious thing. How in the world does a worthless uh, divorce claim get assigned to $200,000? Now, the second thing is she doesn't tell anybody about it, right? Even though the divorce litigation is going on, she insists that he owes child support. She insists that she owes him money. And even though all the financials are supposed to be on the table, even though there's, in fact, a court order from an earlier judge, saying that anybody in the case who accepts loans or gets any kind of income, they have to report it to the court, right? So there's something in the court system uh, in New Jersey, and they have similar things in other states, but it's called a case information statement. And anytime you basically come into some money or you change jobs or something, you have to fill out a new case information statement. So this $200,000 assignment disappears into thin air. It's not reported anywhere. It's never acknowledged on a case information statement. It's never told to the court about it. And, of course, Malhan never find, doesn't find out about it until a year later. So I'm representing Malhan at this point. Initially in the case, um, uh, I, I wasn't representing him, but we're representing him at this point, and we're, we're getting some emails from some, some third parties, some mutual contacts, and we get an email from as I said, one of these third parties that mentions there was some kind of a loan or some kind of a payment uh, of $200,000. And it's kind of vague, but it references this bank in New York that there was some kind of a payment. And we're like, well, my gosh, what what in the world is going on? There's there's some kind of a $200,000 payment to to Ms. Myronova or for her or something from this bank in New York. And we're like, well, this is really, really suspicious. Where did this $200,000 go? And again, it may even be more, but that's the number that we had. So we send a subpoena to the bank in New York to find out about this payment. Now, again, remember, there's already a prior court order, a prior judge that says finances of, of both parties are open game. You can, you can subpoena the information, do what you need. We need to have you know what, what finances both parties have, right? We send the subpoena to the Bank of New York. And now this comes into the, the new judge. In, well, he's not the new judge now, but he was not the first judge. But he's been on the case for about three years now. So it's Judge David Katz. We call him Crooked Katz. Um, so Crooked Katz squashes. He quashes the subpoena to the Bank of New York. Now, again, there's, there's a payment of $200,000 that we don't know what happened to it. It doesn't go into her bank accounts, by the way. So we've subpoenaed her bank accounts. The $200,000 does, does not go into her bank accounts. She never acknowledges she ever got a penny. But it's $200,000 missing. And Judge Cookie Katz quashes the subpoena to the bank in New York so that we can't find out what happened to the money. Now, I mean, this is the first thing. Let me ask you, why, what legitimate basis could there be for a judge not to permit a subpoena to a bank that went to, to $200,000 or more goes to, to one of the litigants. You know, I, mean, I, can't, I can't imagine a legitimate reason. But in any case, so he quashes the subpoena, and he says, well, you don't need to, to um, get the information from the bank. Just ask her. Ask her what, what happened to the money. And we're like, well, that, that's crazy, Judge. I mean, what do you mean ask her? She refuses to say anything. She, so, so, you know, he said, well, just ask her. So we ask her. She says, I don't have to tell you. The judge quashed the subpoena. We don't have to tell you what happened. Go back to the judge. Judge, you said we didn't have to get a subpoena because we could ask her. And she refuses to answer because she says you told her you didn't have to answer. The judge says, I don't care. Okay. 
So she doesn't tell us what happened. She she can't even she wouldn't even verify the full amount of money. You know when we we supposedly were supposed to ask her these questions under oath, and she says. Uh, I don't know, it was a couple hundred thousand, maybe more, maybe less, not really sure what happened to the money. Well, it didn't go to me, it went someplace else, it went, it, it must have gone to my attorney. I don't know what happened to it, I don't I, I don't really know, but I'm not answering any questions about it. Okay, so supposedly it, went, it must have gone to her attorney, right? So we send a subpoena to her attorney, said, okay, tell us the information. Now again, there's a court order from an earlier judge that says, fees paid to all attorneys are open game. Either party may know what, what fees are paid to other attorneys. So we send a subpoena to her attorneys. Guess what? They refuse to comply with the subpoena. They refuse to, to, to tell us one penny if they got any money. And of course, Crooked Cats doesn't do anything. We go to the Crooked Judge, say, Judge, you know, we still don't know what happened to this money. And he says, I don't care. Um, tough luck. So there's $200,000 missing, just disappeared into thin air. And this judge will not let us get to the bottom of it. And there's, there's a lot of other crazy things going on in the case, too. That, that, uh, so, so the other thing this judge did, so the judge, you go back to child support. So this judge took away Mr. Mallon's children. He, Mr. Mallon hasn't seen his children in months. He hasn't had any real relationship with them in three years because of this crooked cat. And so, and then they come back and they want to say that he owes child support, but it's all very, very fishy. Uh, again, the idea that a judge would, would allow hundreds of thousands of dollars to disappear into thin air without a trace, not allowing people to get to the bottom of it, is just incredibly suspicious. And so we're, we're trying to pursue this. We're, we, we, we're trying to, for instance, we've tried to get the judge's financial records that some reason, even though they're supposed to be open to the public, so every year a judge has to file a financial disclosure, listing all of his assets and, and business relations and so forth, uh, which is essentially how they ended up getting these these crooked judges in Pennsylvania because they weren't reporting some of their assets. And we've been trying to get this for months. It's supposed to be open information from the state, but the state hasn't been providing it for some reason. And um, so we've gone into federal court. Now we've sued this judge in federal court. We're trying to get subpoenas and, and federal subpoenas and track this stuff down. Um, but it's, it's it's just incredible. Nobody wants to believe judges are crooked, but lots of judges are crooked. And again, it's like a you know a bad cop. It's a horrible situation, and unless you have something on tape, it's it's uh, you know difficult to prove. And this has been going on for years. So that's kind of the background summary. And again, there's some other cases I can talk about as well. But the, the the big problem is because of the secret nature of these things. And that's the other thing. So this crooked cat has a gag order. He won't allow Mr. Malhan to talk about his case. Uh, it, it, it just goes on and on. So again, so that's the background. So I'm happy to, to fill in even more details and talk about other cases. But that's kind of the background on this on this Malhan case. Well, uh, to, to say it's... Uh... For me, anyway, it's, it's bizarre. Uh, but uh, if I may just uh, for a minute say, especially with the current environment uh, and what's going on with the focus on on policing and uh, the use of force and all this kind of thing, um, I have been involved 
and Delilah as well in something called the Transparency Project. Uh, and our effort has been involved with uh, cold case homicides and suspicious deaths. And the fact that uh, the police agencies are exempt from FOIA requests or Sunshine Law requests when a case is open. So as, as long, and our frustration is that when the family of the victim, the survivors of the victim, the deceased victim, are trying to get information as to how their investigation was conducted and whether it was a proper investigation and so forth, the very people who decide whether or not to release information are the police. Uh, and there are a number of situations where it's perfectly legitimate to not want to release details of the crime. They don't want to uh, do anything to hamper the investigation. But in certain cases, it appears that that exemption can also be used to cover up incompetence, laziness, or worse. And transparency uh, is something that I, I think is really called out for, and it seems to be the same situation that you're in um, regarding what you're dealing with is transparency and getting these records that should be available that are not being released. Uh, so, so do you see that as kind of a parallel thing, the transparency issue? Yes, absolutely. It's it's really part of the whole same crooked system, you know, and the cops and the judges, they work together. Um, I mean, I can, I can tell you a lot of stories about how the police and the cops, uh, you know, work together a lot of the time. I mean, the, 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 the cops, for instance, they know which judges will give them, you know, uh, search or search warrants and things. Um, so it, it, and they, then the, the cops shield the judges, the judges shield the cops. The judges can, can, you know, do whatever they want, not get arrested. I mean, like try and get a DUI as a judge that you don't get, you don't get tickets. You don't get, you don't get arrested. If you're a judge, they just escort you home. Uh, you know, this is all part of the system. You know, it's the one hand washing the other, but you're absolutely right. This needs to be open. And what you'll see in cases is they will keep cases open just to keep it blocked and this is something we've sort of seen in this case I was talking about. It, 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 this woman, Myronova, she filed for divorce in 2011. It's been over nine years, and the case is still open. And this whole thing is a farce. It just goes on and on and on. And then they say, well, there's an open case. So uh, and this is one of the reasons they've been trying to keep the, the, the federal courts from getting involved and the federal government they say, well, wait for it to play itself out. Wait for the state to finish up. And, you know, that we can keep it secret until then. And, of course, they just keep it going and going and going. And I think that happens in criminal cases as well. They will keep a criminal case open just so they can say, there's an ongoing investigation. We can't release that information. But, you know, uh, crime uh, thrives in the darkness, as you know. And, and they want to keep this stuff secret for as long as possible. And then if it ever does come out, it's 10 years later. And they say, oh, well, it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. We fixed that problem by now. Uh, one of the phrases I hate to hear is, well, we know about that. Let's move on. Nobody's ever held accountable. It's just always, you know, forget about it. Uh, 
they get a pass and we'll move on to something else. It's all over with. Uh, yeah, that's it, right. And it's, it's, it's sorry to interrupt, but I mean, it, it, going back to this issue, another one for the police immunity and police oftentimes have immunity uh, for the crimes they commit or at least civil, civil immunity, although it's rarely that they're prosecuted. But the judges have even more. The judges have created judicial immunity. This is a judge-created doctrine. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the Congress or the state legislature didn't say judges have immunity. Judges just say we have immunity. And so it's very hard to, to ever hold these people accountable. They say they have immunity for doing anything they do on the bench. It's like, again, that Pennsylvania case, the Kids for Cash case I talked about. They are able to prosecute these judges for filing these false financial affidavits. But they said you can't prosecute a judge for, for sending a, a, a child to prison, to his own prison, illegally. These judges were immune. They, they sent people to jail who, were, who had done nothing wrong just because they were getting paid whatever it was, you know, $500 a day or something, some crazy amount of money, to house them in their prison. And for sending innocent people to jail, they said the judges can't be prosecuted for that. They have judicial immunity. That's how insane it is. It's so so it's, it's just in a crazy system. Well, Paul, do you think, you know, it, it, considering the climate that we're in right now in this country, the criminal justice system, what do you think the solution is going to be? Um, I Personally, I think these privatized prisons, number one, is is ridiculous. You know, they're they're making money off of the backs of people who are offered no rehabilitation. They have to keep their beds filled, so it, it gives the incentive to police agencies to arrest more people on whether they're trumped up charges or, or you know, lower charges that, that people don't need to be imprisoned for. Um, and what are your feelings about that? And, and do you see anything at all good coming out of this? Well, I hope some good will come out of it. But, you know, we've been down this road before. Every time there's a video of a cop murdering somebody, they talk about it. You know, maybe things will be different. But one of the big things you mentioned is prisons are full of people for, for nonviolent offenses. And they're arrested by police for, for silly nonviolent offenses. In fact, I'm working on an article now about this, but I've published some other articles on, on arrest and, and for nonviolent offenses. But, you know, at common law, an offense – well, first of all, there were far fewer crimes, right? I mean, today everything's illegal. You know, like, uh, like Eric Garner was arrested and murdered for selling cigarettes because it was illegal to sell, you know, loose cigarettes. You know, I mean, that's crazy. Why is it a crime to sell cigarettes? You know, you have to have a license to sell, sell tobacco or whatever. He was trying to sell loose cigarettes for a dollar a piece or something. That's a crime. Not only, was it, not, not only did they want to arrest him and they wanted to take him to jail, and, of course, they murdered him. And, um, you know, in, 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 in the most recent case, um, you know, the Floyd case, the, the allegation was for counterfeiting. Now, I don't know what now – Clearly, counterfeiting needs to be a crime, but it's a nonviolent offense. It was a $20 bill. I haven't seen any evidence that this guy knew that it was a counterfeit bill. I mean, we still don't know what the basis for that was. I mean, it's very easy to – somebody can give you a bill. You don't really look at it, or even if you do look at it, you might not realize it's counterfeit, and then you go and you spend it. It happens all the time. It's only a crime to – 
pass a counterfeit bill if you do it intentionally and knowingly. You know it's counterfeit and you're trying to defraud somebody. I'd, I have not seen any evidence that, that uh, Floyd knew that it was counterfeit. He may well just have been passing something along. In fact, I'm sure it was counterfeit. People think a bill is counterfeit when it's not. But the, to my view, there's no way he should have been arrested. You have someone who, who apparently spends a counterfeit bill. You know, you, you, you stop him, you talk to him, you say, where did you get the bill? Well, okay, well, it's suspicious. We're going to give you a summons, and you need to show up in court. You need to, to, to explain, you know, how you got this bill or where it came from and so forth. But there's no reason to arrest someone, ultimately kill someone over a $20 bill. That's what this comes down to. And so cops are arresting too many people, and then once they're arrested, they get into the system. The prosecutors think they have to prosecute. Again, I've been doing criminal law for more than 10 years. I've had prosecutors tell me up front, look, we have to prosecute. There was an arrest. If we dismiss the charge, you know, they'll say, look, we're probably not going to get a conviction. Sure. But if we dismiss the charge, they might sue the city or the state or the police for false arrest. So then the prosecutors think they have to go forward, and, even, and then there's prosecutorial immunity, even though they know they're prosecuting the crime that, 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 that's nonsense, they are immune from, from civil suit as well. So then they go into these jails. I'm not sure the problem is necessarily private versus public. They're, they're bo- I mean, they're both a moneymaker. The money's going somewhere, whether it's public or private. But again, there has to be openness. You know, if it's a if it's a private jail, we need to know who is running the jail and who is who who is benefiting from it, who is making money. And again, there's certainly options for corruption, like these judges that bought a jail and they sent them to jail. Uh, but again, there's private contracts in in even in public prisons. A lot of them are are publicly owned, privately operated, or they have. Uh, you know, different types of contracts. So there's still opportunities for corruption either way. So, I, again, I don't know that the – I understand the concern with private jails, but I think the, the problem doesn't go away just because the jails are public because there's too many opportunities for, for, for corruption as well. But, again, the, you, you know, what's going to happen? There should be fewer arrests. There should be fewer incarcerations. There should be fewer people in jail. I mean, the number of people in the prison system in the United States is obscene. I mean, you look at other countries around the world, look at, you know, European countries, they don't have these numbers, these vast numbers of people in jail. They don't have arrests. I saw something the other day that were talking about murders by police in other countries. I mean, there, 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 there are lots of European countries where not a single person has died, has been killed by police in a decade or more. And so that's part of this, this problem. But what needs to happen, there needs to be restrictions on arrest. People should not be arrested for nonviolent offenses. Uh, people are getting back to the the counterfeiting case and what we call the mens rea. Mens rea means guilty mind. So in any criminal offense, there's the actus reus, there's the wrongful act, and then there's the mens rea, or the, 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 the guilty mind. And again, for counterfeiting, you have to have a mens rea. You have to know it was counterfeit. This is another huge problem. Both police and judges totally ignore the mens rea that is the the need to to show that there is is uh, intent or knowledge and i've seen it even in judges they just don't care but the us supreme court has said repeatedly to have probable cause for an arrest you have to have probable cause for every element of the offense right so they have to have 
probable cause, not just that this guy spent a counterfeit bill. They have to have evidence that he knew it was counterfeit and intended to spend a counterfeit bill. Police don't care about that. And judges don't care about that, other than the Supreme Court, who said you have to have the mens rea. So that's another thing I think that this should be, that people should be suing cops when they arrest people without probable cause, particularly on the mens rea. But again, the problem is you get into court and the judges say, well, I don't care. Okay, so he did the act. What, what do you care about the, the, the mens rea? Well, that's part of the requirement. Uh, but again, so it's, it's a long laundry list. Fewer arrests better enforcement of probable cause, taking away the limited immunity for cops, not locking up people for nonviolent offenses. I mean, all the people that are in jail for drug offenses and, again, for, for lots of nonviolent offenses, it's just, it's just incredible. So will that happen? Honestly, I doubt it. I think that the legislature is going to make some noises. But this big business, this is all big business. I mean, the, 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 you know, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, like getting you back to the family court nonsense, these child psychologists, they make a fortune. They make hundreds of dollars an hour, and, and they get paid in the courts, and they, they take the assets of people like Mr. Malian, or they sell his property to pay these child psychologists and things. And it's big business, it's big money. The police make lots of money. The police, I mean, some of the, a lot of these cops with overtime are making six-figure incomes. They're making big money. The judges are getting rich. The child psychologists are getting rich. The prison owners are getting rich. So this is a, this is a lot of money going through the system, and it corrupts everything. And that's part of the problem. You know, crime has become a big business in the United States. So my, I'm not too hopeful things will change. I hope they will. I hope there will be some, some reforms and make it easier to sue cops, make it harder to arrest people, make it harder to put people in jail. But anyway, that, that's kind of my rundown of a summary of, of, of the problems I think that need to be corrected. Paul, I, I've got a couple of questions about the case we've been discussing, the case you sure. currently have uh, in court. Um, as far as the criminal aspect of the fraud uh, that uh, was allegedly perpetrated, has uh, the statute of limitations been told on that because the court, you know, has been brought to the attention of the court, or is the, the statute running and is uh, the uh, the ex-wife uh, off the hook as far as criminal prosecution goes? Well, that's a really good question, and certainly the defense in the case would argue that the statute of limitations has told. So, so the, but there's a couple of different frauds to make sure which one we're talking about. So the, the fraud that's that absolutely proved is the, the false checks and falsifying evidence and, and uh, embezzling money. So that, that was, that's absolutely proved. I mean, we have the bank records, we have the signature of the wife. We know that she, she embezzled this money. We know that she filed false uh, case information statements. She filed false, she, she falsified evidence. You know, she whited out these things. So that was years ago, and they've they've dragged this on for so long. They're certainly going to argue the statute of limitations is over. And then, of course, the other one is the judge. The, the, again, this twenty thousand dollars disappeared into thin air. We don't know what what happened to it. This was two years ago. This twenty thousand um, dollars, and you know whether it went to the judge or went to I don't know his family. Uh, again, we're, it just disappeared into thin air. But 
they may say the statute of limitations is running on that. Now, we can make the case that it's been, you know, because as I'm sure you know, this tolling the statute of limitations is something is secret. The statute of limitations is told or, or, or stayed. And I think in that case, certainly, we can make a very strong case that this was hidden, it was concealed, this, this judge deliberately concealed it. You know, but again, they're they're going to argue, oh yeah, it was years ago. We need, don't need to worry about it. But again, the the, the problem with the, to- the statute of limitations is there's lots of reasons that it can be told, and uh, and that's T O L L E D told, and it, it it's going to have a case by case basis. But if you're trying to cover something up, it's a convenient thing to say, right? So if another another judge or federal judge gets involved and says, well, you know what? Uh, judge so and so, Judge Judge Katz, who goes to the same country club as I do, is an old friend of mine. Uh, statute of limitations is told. We can't prosecute him for that. So, again, it's 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 not a clear cut thing always when a statute of limitations is told or is not told. Unfortunately, and but that's why they drag these things. Sorry, that's why they drag these things out as long as possible. The longer it goes on, you know, the easier case they have. And the the federal lawsuit that that you discussed. Now, where does that stand, and what's what's going to happen next, or what do you foresee coming down the road on that? Well, that so where it stands is so we filed suit against against uh, Judge Katz uh, for for again for a lot of the stuff that's going on. It's totally suspicious. The federal judge. Had said that the judge, the judge Katz, has immunity, which we think is is nonsense. But that so the so it's actually on appeal right now. We filed the case about uh, a year ago. Again, Mr. Mallon sued Judge Katz personally. The federal district court dismissed the case, saying that Katz had immunity from suit for anything he does. And you know we think that's clearly wrong. So again, it's on appeal in front of the court of appeals. So we're hoping to to try and get some action on this. Um, now, Mr. Mallon did have another suit that we had an appeal, and we won the appeal. I mean, this is one of the other crazy things that's going on, just to give you how how corrupt the system is. So they claim that Mr. Mallon owed child support, which he doesn't, but for a lot of different reasons. But anyway, I won't go into all the long background. But 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 the long story short was. Several a few years ago, they claimed he owed child support. They went into his bank account and they stole his bank account. They levied his bank account. They took a bunch of money out. Then, not only did they take the money out, they refused to acknowledge they even had the money. So they, his money disappears from his bank. It disappears into thin air. He doesn't know where it is. He calls these child support people in the state and says, wait a minute, you took my money. They said, no, we didn't. We don't have your money. We, we don't have your money. What are you talking about? So he had to file suit in federal court over this. And again, initially they, 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 they dismissed the suit saying that they didn't want to get involved, but then we won the appeal and the appeals come back. Anyway, we've been able to subpoena records from the bank. We know that the state did take his money, even though they tell, said they didn't. And, but they still refused to give him the money back. So it's, it's just incredible that you know, the state refuses to give people the time of day. You have to sue them in federal court to get anything. And so 
you know, we did make some progress in that case. We were able to finally prove that the state stole his money, although they still have his money. They still haven't given it back, even though he won the appeal and they sent it back and they said, you know, you need to account for this. So there's a lot of activity going on in the federal courts. But um, and again, we were victorious in that appeal. Hopefully we will be on this other case involved in, involving uh, the cat's corruption. But as I said in the beginning, the problem is that the federal courts, particularly the district court, they do not want to get involved. The, you know, the state judges and the federal judges, they know each other. They're often friends. They're often members of the same country club, literally. Or the same, you know, um, they try and protect each other. They have this judicial immunity stuff. So it's very hard to make any progress in the district court level, the trial court level, and the federal courts. The court of appeals is a little bit better. And again, like I said, we had this case that that, that we prevailed on. Uh, it was a case last last this, uh, September. If anyone's interested, you can Google it. It's called Malhan versus Tillerson because it involved uh, Tillerson's the Secretary of, of of State or was the Secretary of State because Mr. Mal was losing his passport and all kinds of crazy things. Um, so people can look at that case and see some of the details. But Again, the federal district courts are very reluctant to get involved, and if you get any action at all, it has to go up to the to the court of appeals, and sometimes they will will actually take some action. So that's where we are now, and we're hoping that the court of appeals is actually going to going to help us get to the bottom of this. How how soon do you expect a decision on this? Is it something that's uh, you think is fairly imminent, or is it going to be quite a while? Well, we asked, I believe we asked for expedited consideration, which I, I don't think I, they, they denied. I don't remember if they asked in this case or the other one. But um, in the other case I mentioned that we were victorious, it took the Court of Appeals a year to issue a decision. So, unfortunately, it may be a while. I mean, I hope they will realize this is important and they need to get a decision out quickly. But it's it's something that takes a long time, unfortunately. If if everyone seems to have immunity, the judges, the uh, you discussed, and the, uh, no, the, the police, the cops. And, yeah, every, if everybody has immunity, how is anybody ever held accountable? Well, they rarely are. Is the, is the <laughs> truth of the matter? Um, it's it, you have you have to find. I mean, and, and again, I, I think the ultimate re- thing is that these immunities need to be gotten rid of, or or at least restricted. Judicial immunity is very, very broad. I mean, basically, I'm not really not exaggerating. Basically, what what the, the case law says is the judge is sitting on the bench and he stands up, pulls out a gun, and shoots somebody. Literally, blows someone's brains out. The defendant, he can't be prosecuted for that because he was acting as a judge. He was in the courtroom. I mean, literally, that's what the, the case law based. And there isn't a case involving murder, but literally, they say a judge cannot be prosecuted for anything that occurs in the courtroom, which is insane. So. One of the things we've been trying to do with this, for instance, with, with this crooked cat that I mentioned, is there's stuff that goes on outside of the courtroom. And and that's what you have to try and get them on. And that was what a lot of what this suit was, that we said, well, this judge is doing things outside of the courtroom. And that's what, again, happened in this Pennsylvania case I mentioned, where these judges, even though they couldn't be sued for locking up people illegally and profiting from it, they could be sued for filing a false financial disclosure or something like that. So that's what we're trying to get at in this case. We think there's definitely been a lot of uh, non-judicial acts. In other words, you can never sue the judge for a judicial act, but you can sue a judge for a non-judicial act. 
And so, you know, when these judges are conspiring with these psychologists and psychiatrists, and again, I, this is another suit that we have on some other some other clients as well, that you have these child psychologists that are that are just making tons of money, and and they're they're, they're they literally conspire. These judges know these people; they appoint their friends. I mean, I've had I, I, one of the cases we have. There's another I have another client, and this is and all this public information because it's all been it's all public, you know, suits, and you can Google it, you can find it. Uh, but I have another client, Elvin Serrano. Uh, that we filed suit about, and there's this other judge that just appointed apparently his friend to be a child psychologist. He said on the record, "Oh, I've known uh, this this guy for years, for decades. He's a great guy." Um, and again, they just make tons of money on on they they the the judge says, "Well, I want to have an evaluation of the child, so I'm going to appoint my friend, you know, Joe." <laughs> to do an evaluation. By the way, you're going to get $20,000. I mean, and again, this is the number. Some of these things are more than that. They get, they, they cost 10, 20, 30, $50,000 for these crazy evaluations. And so again, getting back to judicial immunity, if there's some kind of a backdoor communication that this judge is having with the psychologist off the record or not acting as, as a judge, that's how we have to try and bring these people in. And that's how we've been trying to do in these cases and find things, some backdoor channels where they had some kind of a, uh, you know, and often it might be a letter or it might be a phone call, you know, if they made a phone call from their home to, and, and which we know is happening in this case. I mean, the judges are talking to these psychologists. We know that we even had some of these, these psychologists come forward and say they spoke to the judge off the record. Um, so that's the way you have to try and shoehorn these things in. The judicial immunity is, is very difficult to get around. But even when you have stuff like a, a, a judge makes a call from his home, you know, not in the office, he's at home, calls somebody, uh, a psychologist to set something up, some crooked scheme, you know, they'll still argue they have judicial immunity. They'll say, well, yeah, but, you know, he was at home and it was at 11 o'clock at night, but he was really acting as a judge when he made that call. So they always want to shoehorn everything into the judicial immunity. So it's it's difficult, but that's how we have to try and get around it. Now, I I know that uh, from from talking to a lot of people, uh, that dealing with the system, uh, can be very intimidating uh, to people and uh, almost overwhelming when you're taking on the government. Um, and I assume it can also be pretty costly. In other words, we have to you know, hire attorneys, hire investigators or whatever it is. So the people who don't have the uh, maybe the emotional or the financial uh, assets to... Uh, to fight, to fight back, what do they do? They, they, they're just kind of screwed, right? I mean, uh, uh, they just go by the wayside and they're victims. Well, that's often the case, and these things are fought on a shoestring. Most of these people don't have much money or no money. Um, a lot of times they lose their money. They Like in the Malhan case, they, they will just take what money you have out of the bank. They'll, they'll find you in contempt of court or something. They'll take your money away. They'll fine you. So they do everything they can, but so a lot of these things have to be fought on a shoestring. But um, you know, people have to do what they can. I I I tell people if you know you think your judge is crooked, investigate yourself. 
try to get a copy of the financial disclosures, which are supposed to be public, but for some reason they're hard to get. I don't know why. We've been having trouble getting financial disclosures, even though the law says every judge every year. But I tell people, look, if you have a judge you think is crooked, get a copy of the financial disclosure, write to the uh, administrative office of the court, say, I want a copy of the financial disclosure. You know, check that judge out. Go to that judge's house. Follow the judge around. Find what's happening. Now they'll say, oh, you're following the judge. Well, tough luck, judge. You're a public figure. You're a public person. Um, you know, find out what's happening. So there's there's ways to investigate people and to, to try and keep track of them. But that's what I would advise anybody. If, you, if you're in a system, and I have, I have lots of people that, that will call me with problems and say, I think the judge is crooked. I think the judge is taking bribes. You know, and it's like, well, okay, so find out how he's doing it. Get a company financial disclosure. If there's a business that is listed on there that he owns, go to that business. Find out about it. Find out who really, you know, or has an interest in the business. Um, well, it's a lot of times they won't they won't put on there anyway, uh, which is why you need to follow these people around, see who they're meeting with, right? So, again, it's not easy. Uh, people don't have money to hire private investigators, but – you know, if everybody gets on board and, 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 and you know, and, and these judges have multiple victims. So band together with your other, other co-victims uh, of these judges. And, you know, you may have 10 people that one judge victimized. And you all need to band together and take different days. And you each follow him on a different day. You follow that judge everywhere he goes. That judge shouldn't be able to, you know, sneeze without somebody seeing it. And find out what they're doing. Because I know a lot of these judges are crooked. You know, Nobody, Paul, it, you know, seems so, like, it seems like solutions to this corruption issue is like trying to put the genie back in the bottle because it's so pervasive all over the country and, and all through the system. And yeah, I guess my question is, what's going to be most effective? Is it going to be a grassroots effort from the local jurisdictions up to the federal or is it is is it going to take somebody in power and maybe at the federal level to, you know, come on down to the local level and clean this mess up? Well, I don't see anybody coming in, you know, riding in on a white horse and fixing the thing. Um, I, I think what's powerful, for instance, like the Floyd video and some of these videos with the cops that are, that are literally killing people, those things, you can't ignore them, right? So they're very, very powerful. And so, you know, that's why I say the people that have been victimized by judges, do your own investigation, follow them around, videotape them, get them on, on uh, committing crimes on video and send it to the, to, to the local media. I mean, these judges will, 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 you know, drink a bottle of scotch and get in their car and drive because they know they're not going to be arrested for drunk driving. Uh, you know, get a copy of that on video. Send it to the, you know, I followed this guy to the restaurant or the bar. You know, he had six drinks and he got in his car. He was swerving all over the place. And because he's a judge, the police stopped him. And they said, oh, Your Honor, okay, good, you know, good to go. Go ahead. And get all that on video and send it to the to the media. I think it's things like that. If you actually catch these people red-handed and publicize it, you know, like some of the things you all are doing, obviously on your, your, your broadcast, that's the only thing that's going to stop this, I think. You know, the public outcry, but it's, you know, they're not going to police themselves. That's obvious. This has been going on for, for decades, and they don't police themselves. 
You know, I think uh, you mentioned the videos and so forth, and uh, certainly with the technology today, with the uh, almost every phone has a you know re- a camera or a recording or a feature in it that certainly is making it much easier for for stuff to be caught uh, by common citizens, by the regular citizen, because virtually everybody has a cell phone, uh, mostly the smartphones, and they're able to to get these videos that, uh, you know, have, have brought some people down or at least brought attention to some of the, uh, the situations that occur. Um, but you're right, uh, as far as the... Uh, situation we're talking about the family court stuff um i wonder if people know how many other people are in the same boat you know what i mean there's strength in numbers as you say and people banding together and maybe sharing surveillance duties uh of, of the judges and so forth i wonder if these uh you know these people need really somebody maybe to organize them and uh, and let them know there are X number of other people that deal with that particular judge or that particular facility, and uh, and work things out. So do you think it's uh, what you need or what people need is a good strong organizer to kind of set things up and get things moving? Well, there are a number of groups out there, and people can can Google them. Uh, sometimes they're referred to as fathers' rights groups, although it's it's not just fathers; it's lots of other people too. Although, um, you know, a, a lot of times it does seem to be the, the the fathers are considered whether it's right or wrong, and often it's wrong. But this is kind of, you know that the fathers are the money maker, the ones that have the money that need to be you know, and again, money is driving all this stuff. Um, so it's often, you know, the, 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 even though a lot of times, I mean, like in this case, this is the, the main case I was talking about, this crazy woman, Myra Nova, she and her, her boyfriend won a million dollars in the lottery. Of course, they never paid any child support on it. Um, but again, there's lots of groups out there that people can Google. But I want to, again, suggest, you don't, you know, you can do stuff by yourself. If you've been, you know, you don't have to be a victim your whole life. If you've been victimized by the courts, you can fight back in small ways. But certainly, I would encourage people to get in touch with some of these other groups, um, you know, and 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 work with them and help people out. And if you know, if you've been through the system and you were abused by the system, you can help other people that are still in the system. You know, there's lots of work to do. You can, you know, serving judges, uh, complaints, and 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 uh, uh, you know, the work of private investigators, keeping tabs on these people. Uh, you know, going to the to the judge's courtroom. And trying to, I mean, again, a lot of times these things are closed, but not always. Sometimes cases are not closed. You can go and you can actually watch what the judge does because these judges are just, they're so corrupt, they will do one the opposite thing from one case to the next just to come out with the result. Um, I mean, I had a case, I, I had I complained against a judge. I was, and this seems like it's a minor thing, but it's just the, the crazy stuff that these judges do. Um, but just to just give you an example of, of, of what can happen if you're actually in the courtroom. I happened to be in a courtroom uh, of a judge, and he was saying something about an unpublished case that he wasn't going to rely on it because he, he doesn't rely on published unpublished cases. So some of your registrars may know there's published cases and unpublished cases. Um, so but the point is there's this one case where the judge says to the litigant, well, you lose because the case you rely on is non-published. And I, don't, I never rely on, on, on unpublished cases. I don't think they're acceptable. Just don't rely on them. 
the very next case walked in the door. Guy said, oh, well, there's an pub- unpublished case on this. You win because there's an unpublished case that says this. It's like I'm at the same judge that, that an hour ago said he doesn't rely on unpublished cases. Now it says he does rely on, on, on unpublished cases. So that's the kind of crazy stuff that happens in these courts. And, again, I would urge people, if you've been victimized by a judge, if the court is open, and it's supposed to be. I mean, the rule is that courts in the United States are open to the public. In fact, there was even a case in New York. The ACLU sued the courts because they were trying to keep them closed. They were trying to keep these things closed. Uh, But in any case, I'm saying there's a lot of things to do. Yeah, organization is a good idea. The more people you have, the better, safety in numbers, all that. But, you know, individuals can do a lot. You can just go and sit in the courtroom. And, you'll, and, and, and you know, the judge will be you'll, – you'll see how upset this judge will be. They don't know this guy that, that you victimized – that he victimized last year is sitting in his courtroom. He will get nervous. He will get angry. He'll try and throw you out, and then you can sue him for that. Well, this is open to the public, and he threw me out just because he doesn't like me. And then you try and reopen your case. He must really not like me. After all, I took my children away a year ago, and then when I come and try and sit in his courtroom for another case, he throws me out. He had no right to throw me out. This is open to the public. So you can force them to do even more stupid things. And this is what they do because they they think they're above the law. So, again, answer to question is yes, organization is good, lots of ones out there, but you don't have to have that to to fight back. Paul, our, our time's almost up here. Before we close, if people want to uh, get in touch with you or uh, contact you about what you're doing or maybe ask for your help, how would they get a hold of you? Well, let me tell you my website, and you can get my email and the contact information from that. So, so my website is pclarklegal.com. Okay, so again, my name, first initial, P. Last name Clark, so it's pclarklegal.com. That's my website. So if you want, if you go on there, you can find my email address and I think my phone number and so forth. So uh, just ask people, don't send me a bunch of, uh, you know, 10 megabyte videos. <laughs> Sometimes I'll get these big, huge video uploads and things. Um, you know, uh, I don't need to get, you know, all the information in your whole case. But if you have information about corruption uh, in the family courts, uh, definitely like to know about it. Okay, well, Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been certainly a fascinating, uh, fascinating hour here. And um, I also want to thank our audience for listening. So, Paul, again, yes, I, thank I, you. I'd appreciate it if you'd let us know and keep us posted on what happens with that lawsuit. Certainly will. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Until next time, everybody stay healthy and safe. Thank you.